0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's really nice to be here. There are several people in the audience who I recognize. So, welcome to you and welcome to everybody else tonight. Um, I'm going to talk about too fit to fracture: some guidelines for skeletal health and aging, and. Um, <laughs> I'd like to acknowledge especially my colleague, Dr. Laura Gian Gregorio from the University of Waterloo, and she paired with osteoporosis Canada to develop the two fit-to-fracture guidelines that I'll present tonight, Um, and she's also been gracious enough to lend me some of her slides for my talk tonight. And I'd also like to mention that UCSF has the license for the Stand Tall Exercise Program and DVD. So tonight, what I hope that you all will come away with is understanding why we develop osteoporotic fractures. And we're going to review the best evidence for exercise and physical activity in the prevention of osteoporotic fractures. And we'll cover the guidelines for physical activity that are essential to healthy aging, as well as learn how these guidelines change for skeletal health and the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis and osteoporotic fractures. So first I wanna go through a little bit of background about what osteoporosis is. It's a skeletal disorder and it's characterized by compromised bone strength and it predisposes an individual to fracture. And in this picture, you can see on your left, there's a nice, healthy bone that has um, a honeycomb like structure to it that makes it very strong. If you've ever held a honeycomb, it's light as a feather, but if you try to squeeze it and break it, it really doesn't break. It's very, very strong. Our bones are like that when they're healthy. But when our bones are unhealthy, you can see the picture on your right where the integrity, the structure, integrity of the bone is lost, and it predisposes that bone to fracture. It's very fragile, and it loses its structural integrity. One of the problems with osteoporosis is it's painless. You don't know what's happening until, unfortunately, you have a fracture or you experience significant height loss. About 44 million people in the United States are at risk for osteoporosis and for fracture. 10 million of them have osteoporosis. Another 34 million have low bone mass. Four out of five of those are women, so we're at greater risk for osteoporosis and fractures. And all ethnic groups are affected. Osteoporotic fractures have a higher incidence than stroke, breast cancer, and heart attack combined. However, most people are more fearful of those other diagnoses than they are of osteoporosis. Half of all women and 20% of all men after the age of 50 will sustain an osteoporotic fracture in their lifetime. And once a fracture occurs, a future fracture is much more likely. And spine fractures are significantly more prevalent than hip fractures. Again, hip fractures get a lot more attention, um, but spine fractures are significantly more prevalent. And to understand fractures, it helps to understand bone mineral density and what determines adult bone mineral density. And on this um, slide, you're seeing across the x-axis age from birth to 70. On the y-axis, we're looking at bone mass. And from birth to about the age of 30, we're in a very rapid phase of bone acquisition. And 50% of our increase in bone mineral density occurs during adolescence alone. Then we reach a plateau, and we have a slow, gradual rate of loss of about 1% a year. Now women, when we go through menopause, there's a rapid phase of about five years where we lose about 20% of our bone mass in the five years after menopause. And then we level off and we go at the same slow rate of about one, maybe 2% loss per year. So what determines this peak bone mass? Well, genetics, gender, women are more at risk, race and ethnicity, um, white and, um, and Asians are more at risk. Body weight, low body weight. Delayed timing of puberty decreases the formation of peak bone mass. I'm not getting enough calcium during those developmental years. And also not getting enough exercise. Our bones like weight-bearing. They like the compression, they like the bending force, and that stimulates the bone growth during adolescence. And our bone density as an adult is a function of the peak bone mass minus the bone loss. So if we don't reach peak bone mass by the time we're about 30, we basically don't have much in our bone bank. And it's very easy to drop below the fracture threshold and develop a fracture later on in life. So I'm going to step back a little bit and look at the cellular level of what's happening with bone remodeling. There's this constant state of bone resorption where these little bones called the osteoclasts, they come into the scene and they eat away some bone and they create this tiny pit in the bone and then they die. Then, as they're dying, this reversal happens and these osteoblasts, the bone building cells, come onto the scene and they start to fill in that pit that's formed. And so the osteoblasts then build new bone, and then they mineralize that bone. So there is this constant state of resorption and formation at any given time. And it takes about 10 years for our skeleton to normally go through this process of remodeling um, our skeleton so that we basically can heal any kinds of um, um, fractures, microfractures that occur. um, Also, so that we can release calcium for our normal metabolism. So there's reasons why our bone is constantly remodeling. And as long as the formation and the resorption are in balance, we're in good shape and we don't lose bone mass. However, with hormonal changes, particularly menopause... As I mentioned, we lose about 20% of our bone mass in the first five years after menopause for women. Um, For men, testosterone loss is accompanied by loss of bone mineral density as well. Um, Not enough physical activity or not enough skeletal loading, not enough calcium I mentioned earlier, and many diseases such as cancer, gastrointestinal um, disorders, any inflammatory disorders, and then the drugs that are used to treat these diseases often and have an effect and decrease this normal bone remodeling process. And um, as long as there's a check and balance, we're okay. Unfortunately, oftentimes, we end up losing bone mineral density, and that puts us at risk for fracture So one of the ways we know what our bone density is like is we have a DEXA. Uh, Many of you probably had a DEXA scan. The National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends at 65 that all women get a baseline scan and all men at 70 get a baseline scan to get an idea of what your bone mineral density is like. But bone density is only one factor that's used to predict adult fracture risk. A decrease of one standard deviation in the hip is associated with a three-fold increase um, in, for hip fracture in older men and women. And so this bone mineral density is measured as a T-score, and a T-score is expressed as a standard deviation. So it compares your bone mineral density to a healthy 30-year-old who has achieved peak bone mass. So plus 1 or minus 1 standard deviation below this peak bone mass is considered normal. And then minus 1 to minus 2.5 standard deviations below, it's considered low bone mineral density. And if it's minus 2.5 standard deviations or lower, you have technically osteoporosis. So besides bone mineral density, because only 15% of the fracture risk is explained by bone mineral density, as I mentioned, age and gender are risk factors, body mass index, so having a small, thin frame puts you at risk because your bones don't have as much stimulation from weight-bearing. If you've had a prior adult fracture, you're at risk, if your parent fractured a hip, If you're on steroid medications, steroids are not good for the bones, but they may be necessary to treat other underlying disease. If you smoke or drink excessive amounts of alcohol, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, or if you have secondary osteoporosis, which you develop from other kinds of disease processes, these all put you at risk for osteoporosis. And if you go to this website, the World Health Organization, FRACS website, they ask questions and you can answer these questions and it predicts your 10-year risk for a hip fracture. That's called the FRACS model. Unfortunately, the FRACS model does not consider all of these other risk factors like poor physical conditioning, a tendency to fall, too much load when lifting, excessive spinal curvature or hyperkyphosis. So these are risk factors that actually are modifiable with particularly um, changing your physical activity, modifying the way you do things, increasing or targeting your exercise, and those are some of the things that I'm going to be focusing on tonight. So essentially, why do we fracture? Well. Really simply, we fracture when the load that's applied exceeds the strength of the bone. So the load is like the direction or the rate of a fall, the compression that occurs on the spine when you lift something heavy, the amount of spinal curvature that you have because it loads the fronts of your vertebrae, or weak back muscles because they control how well or not well you load the fronts of your vertebrae. And the strength of the bone is determined by the density and the quality of the bone, the size, shape, and structure of the bone, as well as how that mass is distributed. So how, what are the effects of exercise and physical activity on on skeletal health? So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about how exercise and physical activity can affect fractures, bone mineral density, falls, mechanical load on the spine, as well as spinal curvature or hyperkyphosis. So I'm gonna present some pooled results from randomized controlled trials, which is considered the gold standard um, for, for evidence. And much of the research on bone mineral density, the um, effects of exercise on bone mineral density and fractures, that it's been done in postmenopausal women. So it's hard to generalize across, um, across all ages as well as across the sexes. But nonetheless, um, here's data on numerous um, randomized controlled trials on the, um, the effects of exercise for preventing and treating osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. And there were four studies, about 500 people, um, with fracture endpoints. So they determined the effects of exercise um, on fractures. The quality of the evidence was high. And while there was a 4% absolute difference in those who exercised compared to those who didn't, it was not statistically significant. Now, if we looked at the bone mineral density in the spine we looked at change in spine BMD um, as the endpoint. There were 24 studies, including almost 14, or almost 1,500 um, postmenopausal women. The quality was high, and there was a significant difference between the groups. So those who um, exercise had a, a positive effect on the lumbar spine, about a little less than one percent. And what did I say earlier? As we get older, we lose about one to 2% with aging. And so targeted spine strengthening exercise can slow that effect on the um, loss of bone mineral density in the spine. For the hip, the bone mineral density changes in the hip, there were about 20 studies, about 1,300 um, older women, postmenopausal women. The quality, unfortunately, was low, and there was no significant, between, no significant difference between the groups. Now, if we break those studies down, and we look at, the um, again, the effect of exercise on bone mineral density in postmenopausal women, the general effect, as I mentioned, no effect on the hip, there was a positive effect on the lumbar spine. But if we look at the type of exercise intervention, high force dynamic, like running and jumping, it had a positive effect on the hip in terms of bone mineral density changes, no effect on the spine. If we look at low force dynamics, um, just walking, there was no effect on the hip, but there was a positive effect on the lumbar spine. If we look at progressive resistance exercises, where you're constantly um, working at, at um, either max or sub-max intensity to increase the strength, um, it actually increases bone mineral density in the hip as well as the lumbar spine. If you look at resistance exercises where you lo- use low weights it actually has no significant effect at either the hip or the spine, suggesting that low-weight resistance training might be a waste of time if you're interested in in changes in your bone mineral density. But if you want the most benefit high-impact loading, such as jumping or running, combined with resistance training at the hip and at the spine, there was significant improvement in the hip and the lumbar spine. Now if we look at, there's been many observational studies, longitudinal cohorts that have enrolled people and followed them over many years, and looking at the um, fracture endpoints over time. And there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that physical activity does have a positive effect on reducing fractures in older adults. This is a nurse's health study with about 6,000 postmenopausal women. They were enrolled and followed for 12 years. There was lower risk of hip fracture um, compared to a sedentary lifestyle among those with increased standing, regular walking, and brisk walking pace. And if we look a little more carefully at the results of this study, standing for 10 hours or more a week reduced your hip fracture risk by 30% compared to just being a couch potato. Four hours a week of walking reduced the risk by 40%. Eight hours a week of walking reduced it by 55%, and fast-paced walking reduced the risk by 65% more than slow-paced walking. This is another meta-analysis of 13 prospective cohort studies and they determined that moderate to vigorous activity reduced the incidence of hip fracture by 45% among older adults. They found, interestingly enough, that there was a potential for increased risk of fracture, though, among the least active, which kind of makes sense. The least active, they're um, probably the more, most frail. They had an increased risk for fracture, as well as the most active, suggesting that their that you can put yourself at risk um, if you push yourself beyond your limits and beyond your physical skill. This is a study that looked at physical activity over the long term And lifelong physical activity continuing after the age of 65 maintains better bone health. So starting young and continuing throughout life really is important. There is a positive association of bone measures and self-reported physical activity, not only in midlife, but in old age, 65 and older, and then throughout life. So maintaining that throughout life had the best effect on the bone measures. And similarly, um, in this study, they enrolled about 400 men and women. They followed them for 10 years, and they found that the rate of bone loss was less than 1% less in active individuals. So again, if you think about we normally lose about 1% to 2% of our bone density each year with aging, and exercise can reduce that or slow that loss by approximately 1%. It's not going to prevent the bone loss that occurs with aging, but it looks as if it will slow that loss. There's numerous studies on the effects of exercise on falls, and if we can prevent falls, we can prevent a substantial number of hip fractures and spine fractures. There's numerous um, studies on interventions for community-dwelling older adults. Tai Chi, gait, balance training are all effective. Home safety assessment, so going into your home, putting grab bars, pulling up throw rugs, um, keeping lights on at night or a night light on when you go to the ba- bathroom, those can all be effective in those who are at high risk for falls. Even having your cataracts removed can be helpful in reducing fall risk. And going back again to to a meta-analysis, here we're looking at the pooled estimate of the effects of exercise on the rate of falls, and there's about a 16% reduction with all types of exercise programs. Now if we look at them by the type of exercise, it varies. Here we're looking at exercise with moderate or high challenge to balance. and There were forty-three studies that examined um, this type of exercise, and they could they reduced the rate by twenty-two percent. Exercise that had a high challenge to balance reduced the rate to by twenty-five percent. Those that had a total exercise dosage of fifty hours—sorry, yep, fifty hours. Um, Decreased the rate by 23 percent. Those that just included walking reduced it only 10 percent, and a high-risk population actually was able to reduce the rate of falls by 10 percent. And then this is some new data that just came out, looking at the um, at the trial level characteristics and what's the best type of exercise to um, reduce falls, and those. Exercise programs that provide high challenge balance training, they reduced falls by 21%. Those that included three hours a week of an intervention, and that includes balance as well as any kind of exercise, it reduced the the, um, rate by 30%. If you had a high challenge, sorry, neither high challenge or Not three hours a week. So basically, not doing a lot of either one, it reduced your rate by 10%. But those exercise programs that provided a high challenge to balance and three hours per week of exercise reduced um, falls by almost 40 percent, which is very impressive. So what is high challenge to balance? I'm going to show you that in just a little bit. I'm going, we're going to come back to that. But essentially, it includes movement, moving the center of mass. So when I lean forwards, I've moved my center of mass forward of my base of support. And likewise, if I move it backwards, I'm moving my center of mass backwards back of my base of support. And the challenge here is to maintain my balance when I shift my center of mass. Um, Also, narrowing my base of support. So if you stand with your feet wide apart, it's easier to maintain your balance when you shift your your, um, your center of mass over your base of support. But if you put your feet together or you put one foot in front of the other called tandem, you narrow your base of support and it's harder to maintain your balance. But it's also a good way to challenge yourself and give yourself a high challenge balance um, training experience. Likewise, if you begin with holding on, and use upper extremity support to maintain your balance, and then begin by letting go and not using your hands, and challenge yourself by shifting your weight, narrowing your base of support, you've now added a high higher challenge to your balance. Obviously, people who are in better shape and have better balance need to challenge themselves at a higher level in order to maintain that high challenge to balance. But those are some of the components to a good balance training program, and we'll come back to that in just a bit. So let's talk about mechanical loads. Mechanical loads can increase vertebral fracture risk. Here we're looking at body posture and activity and bending forwards where you're rounding your back, you're compressing your vertebrae. Um, that increases the mechanical load on the spine and increases the risk of fracture. Likewise, falls. If you have a fall, there's a large mechanical load that can um, impact your, um, your spine and, and result in a, in a vertebral fracture. People who've got um, really long torsos, um, really tall, they can't, uh, it's it's harder um, to control and reduce the mechanical load during activities. Um, and also, if you have greater weight, um, you're potentially going to increase the load in your vertebrae. Your muscle forces, if you, when your muscles contract, that increases the load to the vertebrae. Um, as does spinal curvature increases the load to the vertebrae. And I love this picture because it looks at forward head posture. Normally your head weighs about 12 pounds. And when your head is over your shoulders, which is over your pelvis and your feet, so that concept of center of mass again, when your head is over your center of mass, it weighs 12 pounds, approximately. But when your head begins to shift forward, relatively, there's an increase in mechanical load, and that 12-pound head is now increased to an effect of 32 pounds. It's physics. Um, and when it goes out farther, that load, the mechanical load to the spine is now 42 pounds. So it's really important to reduce the mechanical load on the spine to keep your head over your um, center of mass, over your base of support. When your discs degenerate, the discs absorb the shock and the strain, and it consequently increases the mechanical load to the vertebrae above and below as well as poor neuromuscular control. If you don't have good control over your back muscles, it's hard to maintain, um, you you increase the load to the the vertebrae. And the problem with all of that is if your bone mineral density is low or the bone quality is not good, when you increase the mechanical load, you increase the risk for vertebral fracture. This is a diagram that shows that when you have excessive curvature, also called hyperkyphosis, the back muscles are lengthened, the lever arms are shorter, and it requires larger forces to stabilize the spine, and larger forces increase mechanical load. And over here, the larger forces that are required to stabilize the spine, there is the center of mass above the vertebrae moves forward and that increases this flexion stress or flexion moment on the vertebrae. That increases compression to the vertebrae. So the weight of the head, the torso, and the muscle forces all contribute to this increased compression in the vertebral body. And that compression increases the risk for fractures and once you've had a fracture, it increases the risk of kyphosis, and then you've got this vicious cycle going here. But you can do something about it. There have been a small number of clinical trials that report, is, that report modest improvements in kyphosis, or spinal curvature, with exercise, and the emphasis has been on back extensor muscle strength and endurance. However, previously, there were a limited number of trials that were variable trial quality. But we just finished the SHEAF randomized controlled trial. We've submitted the manuscript for publication. We enrolled um, 99 older adults for a six-month exercise program, and we reduced spinal curvature with spine-strengthening exercise and postural training. So there is a possibility that um, it's not an inevitable part of aging. All right, so now I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, and we're going to step back. And what are the guidelines for physical activity that are essential to healthy aging? The American College of Sports Medicine, and the Center for Disease Control both agree that if you're 65 years or older are generally fit and have no health conditions that would limit your physical activity, you should be exercising 150 minutes a day of moderate-intensity aerobic exercise, like brisk walking, or 75 minutes of vigorous-intensity aerobic activity, like jogging or running, every week. And weight training, so resistance training, twice a day, or sorry, twice a week, um, to all the major muscle groups. Now, the National Osteoporosis Foundation, they agree with those um, um, aerobic activity guidelines, the strengthening guidelines, but they also recommend daily posture exercise and balance training to prevent falls. And guess what? This is a survey from the Center for Disease Control. Um, and looking at this light green, only 20 to 25% of individuals in the, each of these states follow the recommended guidelines for the Center for Disease Control. California among them, Colorado... Has better compliance. So people in Colorado are more likely to participate and follow the exercise guidelines that are prescribed. So, not to put anybody on, um, make people self-conscious. If you want to raise your hand, you can. If you just want to answer this question, these are the guidelines. How many of you do moderate or vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity for at least 30 minutes on five days a week? You can do it in bouts of 10 minutes, or you can do it more. What about... Exercises to increase your muscle strength, such as lifting weights or working with resistance exercise bands twice a week or more. How many of you do activities that challenge your balance on most days of the week? How many of you do exercises to improve your posture every day? How many of you pay attention to your posture during daily activities? And how many of you progressively increase the intensity of the exercises that you do over time so that they're always challenging to you? So this is what you should be doing if you want to be complying with with the guidelines. Now, so my colleague, Laura Gian Gregorio, and Osteoporosis Canada, they were interested in what's the best evidence for preventing fractures. Can exercise increase bone mineral density? And how can we create guidelines and recommendations for our patients that also respect the differences because not everybody's the same. Some people have, have other underlying diseases, some people have osteoporosis, some people have um, prior vertebral fractures, But interestingly enough, um, what are the patients or the clients or you guys, what do you care about? You care about what exercises are safe for me to do. Is it safe for me to do abdominal exercises? How do I get rid of this hump in my back? Can I do yoga? How much can I lift? Can I still play golf? Well, my doctor told me not to bend or twist. Does that mean I have to walk around like a robot? And I know the exercises I should do, but they're boring. The things that I like to do, I can't do anymore. So the Too Fit to Fracture program was born and they set out to develop evidence-based recommendations for exercise and physical activity, specifically for individuals who had osteoporosis with or without a prior fracture. And they also used this expert consensus process, the Delphi consensus process, that brought in expert researchers and clinicians from all over the world to come up with the best Um, evidence for um, for their clinical decision making. And what they put together were exercise and physical activity recommendations for individuals who've got osteoporosis with or without fractures, and they also developed research priorities, um, collaborations, and other plans for action. So guess what they found? The two fit-to-fracture recommendations Um, Based on this expert consensus as well as the best evidence that I also presented to you all tonight, it's an accumulation of 30 minutes or more a day of moderate to vigorous aerobic physical activity, strength training two times a week, balance training every day, exercises for the back extensor muscles and posture every day, And spine-sparing exercises like hip hinge and step-to-turn to decrease that spinal load, decrease the mechanical load, teaching people how to move rather than teaching people to be afraid of moving. And for individuals who have osteoporosis or... Um, osteoporotic fractures, they felt it's important for people to recognize that it's a multi-component program, that if you just go to the gym and do weight training, or if you just do your 30 minutes of aerobic activity every day, that's not enough. Um, Don't engage in your aerobic training and exclude resistance or balance training, and vice versa, don't engage in resistance and balance training and forget about the weight-bearing training. And if you happen to have osteoporosis or a fracture, consider consulting a physical therapist to help you um, develop a safe and appropriate exercise program. So I talked about better balance and high challenge for balance. Um, So here we've got some activities that move the center of mass, so shifting your weights to the limits of stability. And things like Tai Chi are great for that. Um, Also doing dynamic balance, like walking in figure eight patterns. So that's moving the center of mass over the base of support and maintaining your balance. The next component is narrowing the base of support. So here we have a picture of a tandem stance, so one foot's in front of the other. When you get home tonight, Try that, it's way harder. I'm wobbly when I stand like that, but I'm totally fine when I stand with my feet right next to each other. And then the next challenge is minimizing the upper limb support. So doing this, these kinds of activities at night, first holding on and then starting to brush your teeth and let go and really work on on maintaining um, your center of mass um, with a narrow base, not using your arms. And this is an example of other patterns like walking heel-toe, step aerobics, too narrow, too wide, sideways walking, or grapevine walking. Ways to really challenge yourself. Don't make it easy. So for stronger back muscles, what can we do? Um, Supine presses. I'm going to show you a picture of those in just a minute prone trunk extension to neutral to strengthen your back muscles, even core activation and standing, learning how to activate your abdominal muscles and your back muscles to stabilize you. Should be doing this five to 10 minutes a day, of some kind of posture exercise, and paying attention to posture during your daily activities. And everybody here seemed to raise their hand um, when, they, uh, when I asked that question, so that's great. For individuals who've got a history of a spine fracture, if you're gonna lie down on your back, you may need a pillow under your head to support um, the curvature in your spine. But lying down at intervals during the day, if you have back pain and if you have any fractures, unloads the spine. It also promotes extension of the spine and stretches out the tight front shoulders and hips that occur from prolonged sitting. And also for those who've got a fracture, really consider um, seeking out a trained professional. This is an example of very simple um, supine presses where you lie in a really good position, you elevate your sternum, and you just press your shoulder blades back into into the, um, the ground. This is another example um, for stronger back muscles. I call these alphabets. If you guys wanna do them with me, this is the W. Okay, press your, squeeze your shoulder blades together. Good, elbows into the back pockets, I call it as well. Okay, the V, take your arms up over your head, the victory, thumbs up to protect your shoulders. Press the shoulder, the, the elbows back. Um, between your ears as much as you can. Engage your stomach muscles to keep your back in neutral, but stretch your tight shoulders and squeeze the muscles between the shoulder blades. Good. And lastly, I'm not going to have you do this because you're going to smack your neighbor, but the T, where you just bring your arms out, palms up to, um, to strengthen the muscles in the back and squeezing the shoulder blades together. So you can do those several times during the day to get your five to 10 minutes of back exercises in. For those of you who want more challenge, we use this exercise in our research study. Um, This is a more demanding position, lying on your stomach and lifting your torso up to neutral, adding bands or weights to make it more challenging to build strength and to build endurance. And then paying attention to your posture, um, paying attention to the alignment of the back of the head, over your shoulders, over your ribcage, over your pelvis, and over your feet. So sitting in the chair right now, move your hips back into the chair, uncross your legs, make sure that your back is arched. So Restore that curvature in your lower back by really bringing your ischial bones back in the chair. Sit up, allow the upper back to be supported in the chair, and bring your head back on top of your your shoulders and your pelvis. Okay, good. Practice that when you're sitting. Practice that kind of posture when you're standing. And here's some cues. So imagine that the head is aligned over the shoulders, the pelvis, and the feet. You can practice this next one when you're sitting. Lengthen through the crown of the head so the chin stays horizontal, but as if you have a balloon lengthening um, the back of your neck. To reduce the hyperkyphosis or roundedness in the upper back, uh, we tell the story of Romeo and Juliet. So Romeo is down on the ground, and he's the abdominal muscles. Juliet is up on the balcony, and she's the back muscles. So Romeo is tightening the abdominals up to get to Juliet, and Juliet's pressing her shoulders down to get to Romeo. So there is this constant abdominals and back muscles working together to stabilize you in an upright posture. Show off your jeweled necklace. Okay, spread your wings. Um, And then use your breath. So use your diaphragmatic breathing to give you the core stability. So breathe into the pelvis, into the back, and lastly breathe into the chest rather than exclusively breathing into your chest, which doesn't promote good postural stability. So again, breathing into the nose, into the belly, into the back, and then into the chest to help promote um, postural stability. And then gently brace your abdomen as if someone's going to poke you in the stomach. So just gently engage those abdominal muscles, again, to help to promote postural stability. So what is spine sparing? We talked about mechanical load. If you lift a weight um, that's too heavy or your back is rounded, spine sparing is ways that you can modify activities um, and prevent repetitive, weighted, or end range bending activities. Um, And how do you do that? You hip hinge. Rather than round your back, notice that in this figure, The spine is straight, but the hips are bent and the knees are bent. Um, When you go to turn, keep your feet pointing in the direction of where you're going rather than planting your feet and twisting your spine. Avoid lifting something from the floor. First lift it up to your body and then turn and then put it down. So slow, controlled movements. Avoiding twisting at the end of the range. Balancing loads on either side of the body. Supporting the trunk when bending. So using your arms when you're, um, um, if you're going to bend over um, to pick something up, use your hands on your thighs initially to give you stability. Hold the weight close to the body and not overhead. So here's some pictures of how to pick up an object. Notice the hip hinge. Notice the bend at the hips and the knees. You probably have all learned this in, uh, in Physical Therapy 101. Um, first time you had a back injury, the physical therapist taught you how to hip hinge and bend at your hips and knees, lifting that load up to the spine rather than rounding the back. Okay. And how to move an object. Okay, lifting, turning, and placing. Lifting, turning, and placing. Rather than lifting, twisting, and placing, which increases mechanical load on the spine and increases risk of injury. So are there harms of exercise? Um, Yes, there's unsafe exercises, and many of those are exercises that increase flexion, rounding, twisting, also abdominal exercises. This type of abdominal exercise increases the flexion, the compression on the vertebrae, and really is not, um, should be avoided. There's lots of good ways to strengthen the abdominal muscles, um, keeping the spine protected um, and using the legs as weights um, rather than bending the spine and increasing um, the flexion of the spine. Many people get injured during unsafe transitions. So you're good, you go to exercise class, you're lying on the floor, you go to get up and you twist yourself into a pretzel as you go to get up and you hurt your back. So learning how to roll and keep your spine um, safe. Um, Transitions are really times to pay attention um, during exercise programs. Also, tailoring exercises to um, ability you want to push yourself, but you don't want to um, be overzealous and push yourself too much. And oftentimes um, it helps to get um, professional advice to help you establish an exercise program that's at your level um, and then allows you to progress from there. So should physical activity recommendations vary across individuals? Well, individuals who might have fractures, um, different health conditions, different prior um, levels of physical function, different physical activity histories, um, desires to play certain sports or do certain things, um, those are things that that we as professionals need to consider, and you all need to consider what your preferences are as well as what, what um, what your limitations are. And if somebody has a really strong desire to do something, um, rather than us saying don't do it, how can we help you modify it? How can you integrate spine-sparing activities and do the kinds of activities that you're interested in doing but protect yourself at the same time? For those who have fractures, avoid high impact sports, avoid high fall risk sports, avoid the contact sports, but consider low impact and slower paced activities. For those who have a fracture, gait or balance difficulties, excessive curvature in the spine or back pain, spine sparing and alignment may be more important than intensity. And moderate intensity instead of high-intensity aerobic physical activity may be a safer bet. Again, they may need a trained instructor for classes or physical therapists to help with activities of daily living, and maybe get help uh, beyond doing the light activities of daily living um, and avoid sitting for long periods of time. And really um, consider unloading the spine during the day to promote extension and pain relief. So the key messages today are that exercises can and may reduce fractures. Certainly exercise can prevent falls, even at those who are at high risk for falls. Exercise can maintain bone density or at least slow the bone loss that occurs with aging, and it may increase the bone strength as well. Certainly exercise can improve posture, and it can reduce applied loads um, when you integrate spine-sparing activities. So there's strong and consistent evidence for exercise um, to reduce the risk of mortality, disability, and all kinds of health conditions. And we recommend a multi-component exercise program that includes resistance, aerobic training, posture, and balance activities. So again, what's the best evidence for preventing fractures and can exercise increase the bone mineral density? Um, Hopefully tonight I've answered some of those questions, Um, but also recognize that each one of you has a particular interest, a particular desire, and hopefully um, you've learned tonight how to move rather than how not to move. I've got some great resources for you if you want to go to the Osteoporosis Canada To Fit to Fracture website. They've got exercise videos that are just fantastic. The National Osteoporosis Foundation has um, great resources, as does American Bone Health. If you haven't been to the World Health Organization FRACS site to assess your 10-year risk of hip fracture, worth going to. Um, we have a couple of Stand Tall exercise videos. One, the American Physical Therapy Association has it on their website, and our um, health and wellness department um, has them on our UCSF um, website for our department. And finally, um, I do teach the uh, Stand Tall exercise class and there are other great health and wellness exercise classes at, at the um, Health and Wellness Center offered by our department. So with that said, I would like to open it up for any questions. Yes? What do you think about um, using a mini trampoline with a stability bar on it to hang on to if you have osteoporosis? Safe, not safe. Um, probably depends on how you do it and what you do when you're on it. Um, I probably would avoid really high jumping, but you know, you can do some very light impact on a trampoline, heel pops where you don't even lift your feet up, um, to, you know, gentle, um, gentle kind of um, running in place, holding on. So I think if you have done it for a long time and you're comfortable with it, then I wouldn't stop doing it. But if you were going to start doing it, I would start it in a very protected way without a lot of high impact um, because you have osteoporosis. Will it help bones? There's impact from, from... Yes, um, there's less impact on a trampoline than there is on the ground because there's more ground reaction forces um, on a hard surface than there is on a softer surface. And aside from that, I don't know any studies that have been done to investigate the effects of of trampoline exercise on bone mineral density. Okay, you're welcome. Yes? Can you speak to the muscle-wasting that is associated with aging. Sure. And how how can we prevent that or slow down? Yeah, sure. So the question is um, about the muscle wasting that occurs with aging. So it's also called sarcopenia. And is there anything that we can do to prevent that? And there's lots of good studies on muscle strengthening exercises in older adults, but even the highest trained athlete is going to lose some muscle mass as they get old because of the hormonal changes. Um, But we can do a lot to maintain or slow that loss of muscle mass that, that occurs with aging. There does appear to be a muscle-bone interaction, and there's been a lot of interest in that over the last years. And as I mentioned earlier, site-specific exercise to the hip and to the spine does appear to increase not only muscle mass but bone mineral density. So I think that you have to push yourself to make it high-intensity resistance training until you fatigue. Otherwise, a low resistance is not going to build muscle, and it's not going to build bone as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, you know, a lot of um, older people don't get enough protein, and so making sure that you get um, um, enough protein to build muscle is also really important with aging. Yes. Yes. Yep. Can you talk more about your study of the hyperkyphosis Sure. And, uh, what, what you did and what works? Sure. Um, so the question is, can I talk more about the randomized controlled exercise trial with kyphosis outcomes and what did I learn about what works and what doesn't work? So I, had, I ran two trials recently, one of them the SCORE study, And participants came in a group, and they exercised for one hour twice a week, and they did exercises that were designed to strengthen their back muscles as well as stretch the anterior, the shoulders, and the hips. Um, And they were also instructed to practice good posture every day at least three times a day. And we found that kyphosis, the curvature in the back, did reduce, so it got better. People stood straighter. They had better posture. They also increased their um, trunk strength in the SCORE trial. And in that trial, men and women both responded equally well to the exercise intervention. Kyphosis is expected to progress each year, but participating in the exercise study, prevented the progression and actually reversed the the curvature that had developed. In the other study, people came and did similar exercises three times a week for six months. And in that study, kyphosis improved, and we took spinal radiographs and the The curvature changed on the radiograph as well as clinically it changed, and people in that study actually had a better sense of their physical self image from um, after the study. They felt more confident um, in their physical images after after participation and you know that one of the exercises I showed in the in the talk is lying on your stomach, and I was lying over a bolster, lifting my torso up, and that was one of the exercises that we included in the study. As well as if you've ever done a bird dog exercise where you're on your hands and knees, you lift one arm up and the other leg back, and then you switch and do the other side, we included that exercise. We also, I mean, there's a whole a whole slew of exercises that that I developed based on some of the muscle impairments that I knew were associated with that kind of postural impairment. Is that specific enough for you? Yes, but uh, my, yeah. my understanding of that is that there's actually a curvature in the spine itself with the discs, so my mm-hmm. question is to were able to reverse that? Aspect? Yes, yes, so we were able to reverse the curvature in the upper back. We were able to decrease it more than the expected decline over five years. So we actually changed the curvature in the spine on, on x-ray um, in, by doing those exercises. Yeah, that's very impressive because in an earlier lecture, we learned about the disc degeneration yes. that contributes to yes. the curvature. Yes, the discs degenerate, the vertebrae get compressed, the muscles get weak, and all of those things contribute, Yes but we were able to target the muscles and train people what good posture was, and we were able to make a difference. And so this next study that we're going to be um, recruiting for this summer, we're using an electronic training device um, to see whether just reminding people during the day to sit up straight, to stand up straight, whether that will change the curvature in the spine. Thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll check out some of these uh, websites. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.